Gresham College presents Divine Power by Gwen Griffith Dixon, Gresham Professor of Divinity. Good evening. The uh, title of tonight's lecture is Divine Power. And I'm wondering if you expect this lecture to be about God. <laughs> the reason I ask is, um, what if this lecture had been on a different unlimited attribute which believers of many faiths also ascribe to God? What if it had been called, for example, infinite justice? Some of you may or may not remember that was the name that the United States originally gave to their uh, military operation against Afghanistan after the 11th of September, infinite justice. I wondered at the time what they were thinking of giving a military operation the name infinite justice. Did they mean to say that this war was actually being undertaken by God himself? Or did they actually believe that the United States is capable of discerning and dispensing infinite justice? The reason that the name was changed to the more modest but still very aspirational enduring freedom apparently was because it was pointed out to them that the name infinite justice would be offensive to Muslims. What was astonishing is that they didn't see as Christians that it was no less an offense to their own faith. Because Christians, no less than Muslims or Jews, believe that infinite justice is something that can only be predicated of God. So Jews, Christians, and Muslims would all be highly offended by this title, as would Hindus and Sikhs. And Buddhists, even if they're not theistic, would find the appellation perhaps even more offensive when given to war. And in fact, when you think about it, atheists should probably find it the most ridiculous of, of anyone. But this particular theological slip, I find highly revealing. What the phrase infinite justice unconsciously indicated is that sometimes, sometimes there's this inextricable connection between the view of a people's God and their view of themselves. In many cases, our view of God seems to be taken from our own view of humanity. Maybe not quite what it is, but what we like to fantasize that it could be. One of my favorite examples comes from a Dominican philosopher of religion called my Brian Davies. I have mentioned this before, at least to some of you, so forgive me. Take this as revision. But he's writing against the idea here that God could actually be affected by anything. And he says... We may be in the soup, so to speak, but we can recognize this as a mark of our impotence. Would it then be a mark of God's strength if he was in the soup as well? The reverse would actually seem to be the case. God would seem to be something vulnerable and defective. He's disturbed by the idea that something can act on God, or perhaps then interfere with him. If that were true, he says, then God could be out of control and something could have its way with him and be capable of acting independently of him. Now, whatever the merits of this case, the anxieties that he expresses over God's invulnerability look like the deification of a fantasy of human invulnerability. Something having its way with him and you can be out of control, then he would be vulnerable. 
Our understanding of divine power, of all the attributes we've been looking at this year, perhaps more than any other, shows us who we are. What does power consist in? What is it about power that we admire, such as we believe that it must belong to God, and infinitely so? Gareth Moore, also a Dominican, in fact, he was in the same community as Brian Davies, um, shows a certain skepticism about what can be involved in this particular theological game. To worship one who is powerful in this way can seem a very dubious thing, he writes. It comes close to power worship. A process theologian, David Palin, goes so far as to say that we should give up the idea of omnipotence as something that we use to describe God with. It's an inappropriate quality of the proper object of divine worship. Of worship. It implies that God is capable of being a despot and that we may believe that the divine does not act despotically at present, either because we are ignorant of the strings that are pulling us like puppets or because God is at present not sufficiently bothered to take control. Such views of divine power, he writes, probably owe more to human limitations than to insight into the divine nature. When we find ourselves frustrated, we're tempted to react like children and think that if only we had the power, that we would not put up with such nonsenses. So that's a process view that uh, omnipotence conceived in this way is something that actually is not very appropriate to God. Before we return to this idea of the connection between the human and the divine, let's look at some ideas from the past, from three different religious traditions. The first is Thomas Aquinas, writing in the 13th century, who did, unlike Palin, believe in infinite power. He thought that because God is infinite, God's existence is infinite, therefore active power, as he put it, needs to be infinite as well. The difficulty, as he said, very rightly, is in explaining what God's omnipotence actually consists in. He writes, for there may be doubt as to the precise meaning of the word all, which makes him sound a bit like President Clinton, I suppose. But, um, when we say that God can do all things, what does all mean? And there are two areas which, for Aquinas, all does not, uh, does not include. One of them is doing what is evil, and the other is doing what is logically impossible. The, the problem for all people who hold this point of view is how to explain that there are things that God can't do without this looking like a limit on his, his power or his omnipotence. The way that Thomas does it in the first instance, as far as doing evil is concerned, is to say doing evil or sinning is not an accomplishment. It's a failure. So it's not something that you can do. It's something that's a sign of weakness or ignorance. Or as he puts it, to sin is to fall short of a perfect action. Hence, to be able to sin is to be able to fall short in action which is repugnant to omnipotence. Therefore, it is that God cannot sin because of his omnipotence. His second um, escape route, as far as the logically impossible is concerned, is again to say this is not something you can do that happens to be very difficult. The logically impossible isn't just a miracle. It's something that makes no sense. 
So it's more like saying a square circle than saying the Philosopher's Stone. The Philosopher's Stone may not be real, but we can imagine it, we can conceive of it. But a square circle is just nonsense. You can't picture one. It's not that it's something very difficult to do. It means nothing. For such cannot come under the divine omnipotence, he writes, not because of any defect in the power of God, but because it has not the nature of a feasible or possible thing. Therefore, everything which does not imply a contradiction in terms is numbered among those things that God is called omnipotent for. But whatever implies a contradiction cannot be a word, because no intellect can possibly conceive of such a thing. Thomas does say what omnipotence is chiefly shown him, but I'm saving that for later, so we'll come back to that one. Our second stop in this worldwide tour is in the Muslim world, with one of its most famous thinkers, Al-Ghazali. He has a very intriguing profile as a contributor to these debates, because he started out as a first-rate philosopher with a sort of world-class philosophical mind, but then had a sort of philosophical breakdown, if I could put it that way, and spent many years wandering, and discovered mysticism, and became highly skeptical of the values of certain kinds of philosophical reasoning. But when he counteracts it in one wonderful book called The Incoherence of the Philosophers, which is a title that should be on every academic's wall, um, he actually counters philosophy with philosophy, with a really cutting-edge philosophical reasoning, and, and deconstructs it. But what's intriguing is that when he comes to these questions, he takes more or less the same position as Aquinas, the arch-philosopher, you might say, the one who has no problem with faith and reason. So he says that the logically impossible is not within God's power, for the same reason that Aquinas gives. Because the impossible, he says, consists in affirming at the same time that something is or is not, for example. And he gives other examples. So what, on strict logical grounds, is impossible is simply incoherent. And God doesn't do incoherent things. Anything else, like raising a dead man and making him right while still being dead, God could do if God wished. So he's no trouble with extreme miracles, if I could put it that way. God could surely do those if he wished. The logically impossible is just not a thing to be done. Um, as far as the making of a dead man to write and similar things, he says, well, God is the agent of all. And once it is understood that he is the agent of what normally happens, it is seen that he can also choose not to create the normal expected event. When you put it that way, if God's continual action and intervention is required even to make the normal happen, then God's continual intervention can easily divert the course of the normal. So in other words, in Ghazali's view, it's not as if the normal ticks along by itself and the miracle requires some intervention. God is there continuously enacting all of this, so it's no more difficult to make a dead man right than it, makes, it is to make a dead man sort of corrupt into earth. And he points out that God also creates our knowledge of the events that happens, in his view. So God, therefore, also creates our memories of what is expected and what has actually happened. So there's nothing to stop God, he says, altering the course of nature and then altering our perceptions accordingly. So from Al-Ghazali's point of view, God could create a miracle and we'd never notice. He's being provocative. <laughs> 
obviously, because he's trying to deconstruct the philosophers of a thousand years ago who would be skeptical about the possibility of miracles. Muslim thinkers also dealt extensively with the question about whether or not God can do what is evil. And if anything, it was a more urgent question in Islam than in Christianity, because they had particularly strong notions about God's action and God's power. So for some thinkers, it was actually more repugnant to say that God is not responsible for evil, because that seems to imply something's managed to escape his control. They'd actually sort of take it on the chin for our notions of a, of a good God and say, yes, God did actually will that to happen. They'd rather do that than say, well, God, you know, wrung his hands over and really wished it wouldn't happen, but he just couldn't do anything about it. To them, this is not a God worthy of, of worship. There were thinkers who argued that God could not do evil, like Abu Ishaq al-Nazam, and this is 400 years before Aquinas. He said that God was actually unable <coughs> to do evil. God performs actions purely for their own sake, because of their own intrinsic value. So not just instrumental things, not just, well, I'll do this evil thing because good will come out of it, but for their own intrinsic value. And that can only apply to good and just actions. So this clearly can't be ascribed to God, in his view. So God is actually not able to do evil. Now, modern philosophers love to do things like, well, it all depends on what you mean by able. What does it mean to be able to do evil? And I find a particularly interesting expansion of this idea came from the city of Basra, which is sadly in the news again, for all the wrong reasons, is one of the first cities that will probably be overrun in any war in Iraq. It's in southern Iraq. <clears throat> it was a center of, of learning and scholarship and with distinctive schools of thought. Now, the Basrian philosophers took a particular view of action. That's a very illuminating way to look at this question. Their view was that the ability to do something applies to a whole class of actions and not an individual action. So if I can take a knife and slice, I can slice a cabbage or I can slice a throat. And if you're just talking about the ability to do something, these aren't different abilities. So if I can slice a cabbage, I can cut your throat. You can't have, for example, the ability to slice tomatoes but not my finger. From the Basrian point of view, this makes no sense. All the moral attributes that an action has comes from its context, from its consequences, from your own intentions in performing it. So I can have the ability to cut your throat and man, sort of womanfully refrain from doing so. But the ability to slice or to cut is neither good nor bad. Now, what that means, of course, is God's ability must extend to all these classes of actions. And they say his categories of his ability are unrestricted. Therefore, he possesses the ability to form an action absolutely, whatever his intentions or the context. But that absolute possibility doesn't entail the concrete possibility of doing something wrong or foolish. For what we do wrong, according to the Basarians, is either an error of the facts or else an error of the rightness or the wrongness of the act. It's a very optimistic, positive view, actually, of ethical behavior. We're mistaken in how we judge it. 
or we hope to achieve some benefit or to avoid some wrong by doing it. But none of these kinds of mistakes are possible in God's case. So it becomes concretely impossible for God to do something evil. But because there's no kind of category of actions God can do, they say that this is no restriction on God's omnipotence. So that's an interesting way of breaking down this issue of saying that no, God is not capable of doing wrong, doing foolish things, doing evil things, but that is not a restriction on his power. If anything, it's a sign of God's wisdom or God's goodness. Our last stop is in India, which as you know, is very diverse religiously. And so these are just a few strands from different Indian religious traditions or what we tend rather superficially to call Hinduism. The word for God, the single God, is Ishvara. And the root Ish in Sanskrit actually means the power to will, the ability to will, not the will to power, as in Nietzsche, another relevant point, but the power to will something. And that clearly is so fundamental to their notion of what the Lord is. Ishvara is often translated as the Lord, that it becomes the name of this God. And it's often, when you find references to Ishvara in Sanskrit literature, you'll often find it in a particular context, which is the creation and the maintenance and then the dissolution of the world according to the will of the Lord. One thing that strikes me as an outsider reading their discussions when they say, I'm going to talk about omnipotence now, and they proceed to talk about it, write about it, they approach it through a description of what God actually does in their view, rather than considering whether God theoretically could do this or that. And above all, what they think God actually does is to create, create and then dissolve bring in and out of existence, worlds, universes, endlessly, infinitely. So God's omnipotence is actually shown in the fact that he creates infinite worlds without limit. And it's also shown in God's governance of the world, for which they generally take a very imminent view. God is controlling the world as his inner controller through things in the world. So where Western monotheisms, I'm including Islam as Western, it's West compared to, East, to India, where Western monotheisms sort of tacitly give you the picture of a God who acts in specific activities and specific tasks. Can he do this? Can he do that? He does that. He doesn't do that. The tacit picture here is of a divinity sort of continual, subtle, mediated power. Not this or that isolated event, but just the continual keeping in being of creation. In many of these traditions, of course, it is more personal than that, and God's power is shown directly in relation to human beings. Directly concerned, I'm quoting, with the trials and tribulations, with the joys and sorrows of the individual souls. That comes from a tradition of the philosopher Madhva. And for Madhva, God is also the source of ignorance, which is different from other Indian thinkers like Shankara, who I often quote. But God is also the, the source of knowledge, the cause of knowledge in us, and telling us the way out of suffering. Interestingly, the um, word for power in Sanskrit is shakti, 
which is a word with many interesting uses, although it's simply the word for this kind of power, but it also refers as a kind of proper name to the female or the feminine dimension of the Godhead. So sometimes you see Shakti as the feminine side of Shiva, or you see Shakti referred to as the Divine Mother. So I just I throw that in just at the end, but it was an interesting observation from um, Hindu professor Arindam Chakrabarti, who uh, wrote to me, isn't it interesting that while in Semitic religion God's masculinity is constituted by his power, the Shakti power of God is constituted in Indic theism by his her femininity. That is a sort of different perspective in how you view the divine, that uh, when you want to talk about power in India, it's mum, it's not dad, it's the feminine. What comes to the fore for me from these discussions in Indian philosophy is that divine power is seen in what God actually does, according to the believer. And I suppose if your aim is to understand your faith, or if your aim is to understand God that you believe exists, how else would you go about it? Why waste time on situations in which God might or might not do something which you don't actually believe God would do, like make a square circle? What spiritual use is, is that, and how does it contribute to knowledge if you're talking about something that is not real? But what if the aim is different? What if your aim is not to understand faith or understand what God is? What if, if your aim is to show that the very concept of God is incoherent? Then a whole new sort of philosophical game can be played, and that's what tends to dominate discussions now in the English-speaking world. One of the greatest areas, I'm not even sure I should say debate, but the things on which most articles seem to be published in the last decade or two, is something called the paradox of the stone. And it goes like this. Either God can create a stone which he cannot lift, or God cannot create a stone which he cannot lift. If God can create a stone which he cannot lift, then he's not omnipotent, because he can't lift it. Right? There's something he can't do. If God cannot create a stone which he cannot lift, because he's so good at lifting, then he's not omnipotent, because he can't make it. So either he can't make it or he can't lift it. Therefore, God is not omnipotent. And of course, what's going on here is not, well, we should all start believing in a weak God who needs to take up weight training. Obviously, what's going on here is there can be no omnipotent being, because the concept is incoherent. Now, if you're a believer, you might like to consider whether your faith really consists in um, a God who can lift stones, or for that matter, make them in that kind of way. If you're not a believer, you might think whether, in fairness, religious believers are obliged to believe in a God that engages in kind of hands-on geological activity. But if, as I suspect the majority are, uh, you don't really see the point of this question, or you don't see that this is, in fact, a burning, profound religious dilemma, you might be wondering why so much time has been spent, been spent on an ostensibly <coughs> silly question. There are ways of tackling this stone paradox head-on. You can say that he's got infinite stone-making power and infinite stone-lifting power, and the one always outruns the other, so it doesn't really constitute a limit on his omnipotence. Um, one of my favorite ways of getting around <coughs> it is um, 
to say, all right, then, if God can do something that's self-contradictory, then what's wrong with saying he can do two things which are self-contradictory? I mean, that's no more implausible than saying he can do one thing that's self-contradictory. So he says, Harry Frankfurt, if an omnipotent <coughs> being can do what is logically impossible, then he can not only create situations which he cannot handle, but also he can handle situations which he cannot handle. And that's no more self-contradictory. So there. But of course, this doesn't really settle it for the skeptic. <coughs> I think one of the things that we observe here in this kind of debate, which has gone a long way from reflections on spiritual wisdom, as in the mystic East, is that philosophy in the English-speaking world has become obsessed with God's capabilities, rather than with understanding the relationship between God and human beings. Aquinas or even Rushd or Al-Ghazali or the Nyaya thinkers that I've all looked at earlier would have thrown up their hands at the idea that God had capabilities, as if he were a sort of very high-tech weapon. For these thinkers, God doesn't engage in activities. He doesn't have capabilities. And the point of this kind of philosophical reflection on can God do evil? In other words, am I responsible for my evil or is God responsible for it? These have a sort of philosophical point. They have a religious point to them. You're not trying to nail down some trivial issue. You're trying to understand what is deeply important to you. So does this obsession with divine capabilities indicate that this anthropological link, this link between human fantasies and pictures of the divine is actually showing here again? This process that constructs a picture of divine power out of its fantasy of human power and then reclaims it. There's an interesting line from the Bhagavad Gita. This human person is made of faith. You are what you have faith in. You are what you have faith in. So what is it that we have faith in here? Or you could as well ask what have these people lost faith in? And here we can reflect on some insights again from this philosopher, Hindu philosopher, Arindam Chakrabarti. He was alluding in an article to the activities of some of the Hindu extremists, or as people tend to call them now Hindu fundamentalists. And he says that violence on behalf of, on behalf of faith is actually a loss of faith. A loss of faith in dharma, as he puts it in the Hindu context, religious duty or a loss of faith in, in God. It's a loss of faith, he says, that makes a religious community turn violent. As he writes in the Hindu context, if Hindus really believed that Rama or Shiva is omnipotent and omnipresent, then they would not have taken up arms to protect Rama. We can extend this point to say if religious terrorists, for example, really believed in the rule of God, and the reach of God's justice, they wouldn't commit the acts that they do. We could also say if the White House, which apparently is vigorously Christian, um, as some of its members are said to be, if they really believed that infinite justice belonged to an omnipotent God who acts in the world, how would they act now? And how would they name it? The um, 
less overtly religious British look with alarm in some circles on the alleged Bible study mornings that we hear about taking place in the White House. I don't know if some of you saw the interview with Tony Blair and Jeremy Paxman last week where um, Paxman pressed him on his Christianity and then asked, uh, do you pray with George Bush? I think in the religion, I mean, it, it was very interesting to me the contrast between the American and the British perspective. I mean, Bush would probably have said yes, and he would have seen it as going down well with the voters. There was a clear look of alarm and distress and annoyance on Blair's face. I mustn't admit to anything so shameful as this. You could have asked him private questions about his relationship with his wife, which he would have been more likely to answer. Um, but it's clear from that uh, negative response he gave to Paxman that the British attitude towards prayer in the White House um, is, is one of great concern. And many people's, I think, response would be, this is an unfortunate consequence of faith kind of meddling in politics. But I wonder if, following this paradoxical suggestion from Chakrabarti, are we seeing instead a loss of faith in divine power? And I can't help wondering if the God that they believe in is a God that's become like the UN. It's not living up, God is not living up to his responsibilities to control the world. We have to step in. And we have to sort it out. We'll have to go it alone if necessary, with or without God's help or the UN. But if so, this is following that familiar cycle that I described at the beginning of this lecture of having a particular fantasy of human power and what it consists in, capabilities, being able to control things, projecting it out, outwards onto God. But when that God if that God exists, fails to act in the way that he ought to, based on our picture of him, then you, you step in and you reappropriate that image and you call your own military uh, operation infinite justice and uh, appropriate the divine power that you've just ascribed to God. So whereas Hinduism talks about Ishvara, Ishvara's power in creating and sustaining and controlling and dissolving the world, now it looks like our desires to create, sustain, control, and destroy the world are being named as infinite justice. What happens when there is a human appropriation of the power which, for the conventional believer, should properly be God's, for example, the taking of life? Chakrabarti derives this lesson from the Mahabharata. When religious duty is violated, it itself becomes a killer. Manipulating a civilization's values therefore can be a very dangerous thing. We heard much about, uh, after the 11th of September, we heard a lot about the need to defend our values. But I wonder if our values need defending. Do they instead need putting into practice? If our values, shown in concepts of human and divine power, are to be vulnerable is to be defective and out of control and then something can have its way with you. Power is measured in capabilities. The more unrestricted your capabilities, the greater your power. And power must be demonstrated in acting out these capabilities whenever challenged. Then perhaps we are seeing people putting their values into practice 
but what if your values or your concepts of power are different? Then they could be shown in a very different conception of divine power, perhaps one in which omnipotence is shown in infinite generosity or endless giving rather than total control. Now that may sound radical or new age or feminist or lefty or whatever, but actually listen to these three very traditional sources I consulted earlier. In the Quran, majesty and generosity are conceptually united in one of the divine names given to God. And Al-Ghazali, whom I quoted earlier, explains, for majesty is his by nature, while generosity emanates from him to his creation. So majesty isn't un unpacked or explained there as control, it's shown as generosity. That's what divine majesty consists in. One more quote from Arindam Chakravarti. In the Indian tradition, the greatest power ascribed to Ishvara, to God, is the power to shower grace, often undeserved. So while it is a great thing for omnipotence to create or destroy a world, the power to give unlimited grace is even greater. And finally, from Thomas Aquinas. God's omnipotence is above all shown in sparing and having mercy, because in this is it made manifest that God has supreme power. Thank you. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.